Do you believe that? The words of that song? <clears throat> I think we'd better, I think we'd better believe that. I love singing hymns. Part of the reason I love it is because I grew up singing hymns. And um, there's just great power, not only in these hymns as they're written, but also in knowing that we're singing songs that have been sung by believers for generation after generation that are true about God and about what He's like and who He is. So there's great power in singing hymns, and I love being able to do that together. We do need the Lord. We do need the Lord, and we need Him all the time. And as Joe said, that's going to be very evident in our passage this morning. I want to start not in Acts this morning, but I want to start by telling you another story that you may or may not have heard before. It's the story of a young woman. Her name is Cinderella. And once upon a time, Cinderella lived with her stepmother. And one day she married a handsome prince, and they lived happily ever after. That's the story of Cinderella. Thank you. I wasn't expecting applause for that, but it seems to be that kind of morning. <laughs> That's the story of Cinderella. She lived with her stepmother, and then she married a prince and lived happily ever after. Now, is that an accurate telling of the story of Cinderella? For those of you who are familiar with it, is that accurate to the story? Is it, that's true, right? But it's, it's not the whole story. I think that's what you're feeling. That, that's not the whole story story of Cinderella, we sort of skipped the best part. Not, not really the best part, actually, the worst parts of the story, but the worst parts of the story are what make the best parts of the story, because the hardest part, the, the part in the middle, when we skip over that, we lose the part of the story that makes it compelling. We lose the part of the story that makes, it, that makes us care about what happens to her in the end. Without the middle bit, it's not as compelling or as interesting of a story because the part where we really learn something important and the part where we really learn something about Cinderella is in the middle. It's not at the beginning or at the end. Now, the narrative of our story this morning in Acts is actually pretty straightforward. Paul has appealed to Caesar. He's been on trial, as we've seen week after week, and he's made his appeal to Caesar and he's going to Rome, and God has said, Paul, you're going to get to Rome. And Luke, who's the author of Acts, who's recounting the story and recording the story for us, he says at the beginning of chapter 27 that they're going to set sail for Rome. And at the end of chapter 27, he says that they arrive on land. So we could tell this morning's story something like this. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius. And embarking in a ship which was about to set sail, we put to sea. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. That's how we could tell Acts chapter 27 this morning. We could tell the story that way and it would be true. But what I just read for you were parts of verses 1 and 2 and the end of verse 44. It's not the whole story. We sort of skipped a little bit. The question is, why is all that other stuff in there? Well, what did we actually skip? Other than 41 verses, what did we actually skip? Well, we skipped the part where a two-week journey from Caesarea to Rome took about a month and a half. We skipped the part where that month and a half journey didn't actually get them to Rome, that before they get to Rome, 
It takes another three months on top of that. Because the month and a half journey actually just gets them onto dry land and saves their life. But we know how the story ends because if you were to look in your Bible this morning, you can see in chapter 28 it says Paul in Rome. So we know Paul gets to Rome and we know that God promised he would get to Rome. So why does God put on all this other stuff? Why does Luke tell us all this other bit? Well, if we just say that they set sail and then they ended up in Rome, we sort of skip the best part. Well, not actually the best part. Actually, we skip the worst part, the hardest part. But we skip the part that makes the story compelling. We skip the part that tells us something about the people in the story that makes us care that at the end of chapter 27, they're on dry land. So let's not skip that part. Here's Here's the question that we're really asking this morning. Why does it matter how God does what He does? Why does the how matter? That's the question. Why does the how of Cinderella's story make a difference? Why is that? And why is it that the how of this story makes a difference? And here's what I would say, just to put this in your head as we, before we look into Scripture this morning. Because knowing God's plan and living God's plan are two different things. Knowing that God has a plan and then living it out are two very different things. Understanding that God fulfills His promise and waiting for God to fulfill His promise are two different things. Because trusting that God will accomplish His purposes is different than trusting how God will accomplish His purposes. Do you understand the difference between the two? Because when God says, Paul, I will get you to Rome... He doesn't tell him how. And there's a difference between knowing you're going to get to Rome and knowing how you're going to get there, as you're going to see this morning. And for us, I think the how is where we get hung up. We can all say, I trust God. We can all say, I know that God has a plan for my life. I know that God has a purpose for my life. I even know that God has a purpose in some of the difficult things that I experience in my life. But the truth is, we get hung up in the how. Because we can trust that God's going to do it, but then when God starts to do it the way God is going to do it, we say, "Uh uh-uh, not like that. I didn't sign up for that. And God says, sure you did. You said you trust me, so trust me. Here's the title of the sermon. If I were giving the sermon a title this morning other than chapter 27 of Acts, here's the title I would give it. Sometimes following God is miserable. How's that for a sermon title? We should have put that in the worship folder today. Sometimes following God is miserable. That's not the whole story. It's just not the whole story. Would you pray with me before we look into God's Word this morning? Heavenly Father, we want to trust you, but it's hard to trust you in the how. We know that we can trust you, but sometimes we forget that we can trust you. So would you show us this morning, Lord, that you are... You are God and you are trustworthy and you have a plan and a purpose and that we can trust you with how you choose to do that in our lives. Pray that you would speak through your word this morning in a powerful way. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 27. We're getting really close for those of you who have been with us through most of this study. We're almost there. Next week is our last week in Acts. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we've distributed some 
on the benches here, so if you don't have one and you'd like one, if you look around, you can probably find one near you, and you're welcome to grab that and use that. If you're using our Bible, we're going to be on page 936, Acts chapter 27. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to just take ours home with you as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Just read with me. We have a lot to go through this morning. It's a big, long story. We skipped a lot in my summary of Acts chapter 27. So read along with me starting in verse 1. It says this, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, Luke is going to use this terminology a lot. There's a lot of sailor terminology, and there's at least one sailor, two that I can think of that are here this morning. But most of us don't know these terms. So when he says this, we're sailing under the lee, what he's saying is we're protecting ourselves as much as we can from the wind, which is against us. So we're sailing around an island to protect ourselves from the wind because it's not a steamship. So under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us, verse 5, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So they just got on a bigger ship to take the rest of the journey. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. As the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete. There's that again, off Salmon, trying to protect themselves from the wind. That's what's going on. Verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty... We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So now remember, Paul is not just enjoying a cruise on the Mediterranean. He's a prisoner. But he's kind of a prisoner with some comfort. You can see the centurion likes him. Paul has some influence. Paul is a Roman citizen. His case is kind of unique. He's appealed to Caesar, which is rare. So he's not like the other prisoners on the ship that are just going to Rome to be killed by gladiators. He has some comfort, and he's allowed to see his friends when they come into port. He's allowed to bring Luke and his friend Aristarchus along with him. But you'll notice that the voyage isn't comfortable for very long because almost immediately there's resistance. Now, usually with Paul, what we see is resistance in people. What we've seen in Asia and Jerusalem is people rising up against Paul and his message. What we see in this case is natural resistance, like weather. Just look at the language here that's used. Verse 4, the winds were against us almost from the outset. They get on a bigger ship in verse 6, and then verse 7 it says we sailed slowly. We arrived with difficulty. The wind did not allow us to go any farther. And then even when they come around the island of Cyprus, it says, of Crete, I mean, verse 8, coasting along with difficulty. From the very outset, the journey is difficult. Now continue the story with me in verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them 
saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, I know you caught all of that, but just just to summarize what's going on here. So they land on the island of Crete in a little harbor called Fair Havens, which sounds really pleasant. Fair Havens is a great name. But winter is coming quickly. It says the fast had already passed. That's giving us the time of year. Winter is coming. It's getting harder and harder to sail. It's going to be very difficult to make it to Rome. And Paul says, guys, if I, I think if we go any further, it's going to be bad. That's my, my perception of where this is headed. And then Luke tells us that the ship's captain and the ship's owner basically say, we can't spend the winter here. Let's spend the winter in Phoenix. Now, if you've been to Phoenix, you know it's very nice in the winter. It stays warm all year round. Totally different Phoenix, not Phoenix, Arizona. But they're saying it's better for us if we move on to another port. The ship is too big for this port. The town is too small for the number of people we have on the ship. We really need to make it to Phoenix. Now, the way it sounds, if you have no idea where they are, this sounds pretty dramatic. But I've asked Ryan if the team there could put up a map for you this morning, just because I know you're pretty familiar with the Mediterranean and Paul's journey here, but okay, so they started in Caesarea. I forgot the pointer, but here, this works. They started here, and now they're here. See, it worked perfect. There's Fair Havens. Here's Phoenix. It's like an inch away. It's really close. It's on the same island. So it's not like the ship's captain and the ship's owner have some outrageous plan of how far they're going to go. They're just saying, we want to go from here to here. And Luke tells us, thank you, Mark. Luke tells us that the centurion pays more attention to the ship's captain and the ship's owner than he does to Paul. Well, of course he does. Paul is a prisoner who makes tents for a living. This guy sails ships for a living, and this guy owns the boat. They're saying, we shouldn't stay here. We should move an inch away. It's right along the coast. I think we can make it. How do you think that's going to work? It doesn't, it's not great. Thank you very much. This is very helpful. Uh, you may have seen like a sneak peek of what's coming. Actually, could you bring it back up? This is worth pointing out. Okay. <clears throat> they want to go to Phoenix. You're going to see there's no arrow that goes to Phoenix, but there is a really squiggly line coming up. Okay. Thank you. That's perfect. Now you know what's going to happen. Okay. At first, it looks like it's going to be fine. Verse 13 of Acts chapter 27. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. So they're hugging the shore. They're going to try to get there before winter sets in. Verse 14. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, where we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands." 
When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It's not going well. We're right in the squiggly line portion of the journey. It starts out pretty good, gentle south wind, and then they hit a hurricane, essentially, that comes off of the land and pushes them out to sea. And Luke records all of the ways that they try to save their own life. Look with me back here. The first thing they do is they secure the ship's lifeboat. They're dragging it along behind and they try to bring it in so it doesn't drag them down or help to do that. So they pull it into the boat full of water in the middle of a massive storm. They're able to do that. Then the next thing they do is they use some ropes or supports to undergird the ship, which for us right now sounds fine, but if you're on a ship being tossed around in the ocean and someone says, someone better tie this thing together so it doesn't come apart, that's unsettling. They're literally tying the ship together so that it doesn't break apart in the waves. The next thing they do, it says they lower the gear, they lower the sails and maybe even the anchors just to try to keep the boat from being driven into a sandbar or a a region of sandbars that are close by. So they know of that danger. Finally, they just start throwing everything off the ship. They throw all the cargo overboard, then the next day they throw all the tackle overboard, all the gear on the ship that they don't absolutely need goes over. Why? Just to keep the ship buoyant enough that it doesn't go under. And then, when they've done everything humanly possible, they do the only thing left, which is give up. It's that they just completely give up hope. They are going to die. That's how the story's going to end. It says, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. They're going to die. But thankfully, for everybody on the ship, they have Paul there to tell them, I told you so. That seems to be God's given role for Paul. Verse 21, since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I cannot imagine a way that he could say this that is not super annoying. (laughs) I've tried to think about it because I want to give Paul the benefit of the doubt, but I'm like, man, there is no way you can say that where everyone on the ship is like, let's lighten the ship a little more now. Paul, you're next, right? We're going to toss you over. God has given Paul a message to encourage the people on the ship. For the record, I'm not sure that part was the message from God. I think Paul might have ad-libbed that part, the I told you so part. But look what he says, verse 22. Look what God does. And look what Paul says, verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. He says, Guys, take heart, be encouraged. We're only going to lose the ship. (laughs) they're like, okay, keep going. There's more to the message, right? We have to run aground somewhere, but God has said, he's got a plan for me. He's going to get me to Rome. And he said, all of you, he has granted me all of your lives. We will not die. 
when they are at their absolute lowest, all hope is abandoned, God shows up. And God says, Paul, I have a plan for you, and I'm going to use you, and I'm going to give you everybody that's with you. Verse 27, this is interesting. I don't want you to miss this. When the 14th night had come, that's how verse 27 starts. The 14th night, that means it has been 11 days since Paul said, guys, you're not going to die. Because on the third day, they threw everything off the boat, and the angel shows up to Paul, and he encourages them. It's been almost two weeks since he said, don't worry, it's going to be fine. I would have started doubting Paul by now. On the 14th day, night had come as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther, they took, on a, sounding, took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. So the, the water's getting shallower and shallower. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship of the boat and let it go. So God sends an angel to encourage Paul. Things don't get better immediately. They don't get better even close to immediately. They actually get a lot worse. They're still at sea. They haven't eaten in like two weeks, either because they can't prepare any food or they can't hold any food down. And then the sailors try to abandon the ship. (laughs) Do you see that? They get the lifeboat, and they're pretending to let down the anchor. They're really letting down the boat, and they're going to run away because they think they're getting close enough to land that they can make it. The sailors are leaving the sailboat And Paul looks at the soldiers and says, if they leave, we don't make it. (laughs) So the sailors, uh, the soldiers cut the boat away. We're all in this together now. We see Paul lead in a crisis situation because he believes that God is going to do what he actually said he was going to do, even the, the situation is completely hopeless. Verse 33, as the day, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. The end of this little journey for them is, is close. It's almost over. Okay? And Paul says, you guys need to eat something. You need your strength. And he takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he thanks God for it, and he eats. And it says that they're encouraged by that. I'm a little bit convicted by this, because I have to think this is a very powerful prayer of thanksgiving by Paul knowing what's coming, knowing what they've been through, praying in front of all of them, thanking God for bread. And I have been in a restaurant where I've told my kids, I think it's too loud for us to say grace. Let's just, God knows we're thankful for the food. (laughs) What do you think this was like? Think of this the next time you say grace before you eat food and think of this prayer. And just think about whether you really mean what you're saying or not. That's my encouragement to you. When we pray for food and we thank God for things, just pray like you mean it. I think they meant this prayer. 
verse 39. Bear with me. We're getting close to the end of chapter 27 here. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, and then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. So they're just going to run the ship aground. They can't even do that. Striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, not on the beach, this is on a reef in the water. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So they finally see land, they see a place to put the boat, they're going to run it up on the sand, and they can't even get there. They hit a reef on the way. Now the boat is stuck, and the waves are breaking it to pieces. Could this possibly get any worse? Read verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. So yeah, it could get worse. The soldiers are accountable for the prisoners. If the, if the prisoners escape, the soldiers die. So the easiest way to handle that is just kill the prisoners. Then they didn't get away. Verse 43. But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And here it is. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The centurion says, if you can swim, jump and swim to the shore. If you can't, grab something that floats and hope you wash ashore. That's the big plan that's going to save them all. And I love the way the chapter ends because I don't know if it's meant to be funny or ironic or if that's just how I read it. But when I read, and so it was that they were all brought safely to land, I think, how can he say that? That sounds wrong after what we just read. There was nothing safe about the journey. It was insane. But the truth is, all 276 people are safely on the land. The how God did it is less important than the fact that God did it. He did bring them safely through. Now, that's the end of chapter 27, but bear with me. I want to tell the end of the story, which is actually in chapter 28. So read with me just a little further. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had began to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. This is how I know that God has a sense of humor. Because this is what happens after this voyage at sea, this month and a, this crazy journey, this ridiculous journey, really. After all of this stuff happens, after 276 people safely wash up on the shore after this harrowing journey, the ordeal is finally at an end. They find the natives who are being helpful, going to start a fire because it's raining and it's cold. And of all 276 people that wash up on the shore, it's Paul that gets bit by a snake. 
And I just have to imagine that after everything he's been through, he's got to be looking in the snake, at the snake, which it says is hanging off of his hand. And he's got to just look up and be like, seriously? Like, seriously? And he just shakes it off into the fire and goes about his business. And the people on the island know the snake and they know what happens next. This is the part where you swell up and die. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. And they're waiting for it and it doesn't happen. What is God doing in this, in all of this? Well, now Paul has instant credibility because they believe that he is a God. And it just gets better. Look, we'll end with this. Verse 7 of chapter 28. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. What was the point of all of this? Well, God uses Paul to bless the people of Malta, to heal diseases, to point them to God. They believe Paul is a God. I have to imagine from what we know of Paul, it doesn't take him very long to correct their thinking and to point them to Jesus. They spend a lot of time on the island. He heals all of these people in the name of Jesus. God uses Paul to bless the people of Malta, and then when it's time for Paul to leave, God uses the people of Malta to bless Paul. Do you see that? When they leave, they get everything they need because the people on the island are so grateful. Why is it important how Paul gets to Rome? Why is it important? Well, certainly it's a great story. Certainly it's an amazing story, and if it were our story, if I were Luke, I would certainly have written this down because this is unbelievable what has happened, and it's unforgettable. You would never forget it if you lived through this. But what was God's purpose in all of it? That's the question. Why did God take them through all this? Why the squiggly line? Why not safe straight to Rome? I can think of a bunch of things. Let me just point out a few. Think of the testimony of Paul in this story to 275 people on the boat. 275 people who know they are going to die. And Paul says, no, you're not, because God said you wouldn't, and I trust God. Do you know why I trust God? Because he's trustworthy. And I don't know how many conversations they were able to have during that storm and on that time, but I have to imagine that Paul said some things about Jesus and said some things about God and told them some stories because Paul had been through some rough times before. So if nothing else, think of the testimony of Paul to those 275 people on the boat. And then think of Paul's ministry to the people of Malta for three months before he gets to Rome while they winter there. But if you want, you could think about it the other way around. Think of the testimony of 275 other people who were on the boat. Think of the story they all told when they got home. I knew I was going to die until some guy stood up and said, No, you're not, because God has a plan for me, and he said, you get to come along. Think of that story, 275 people. Can we bring that map up again? Here's another thing to think about. Here's Rome's up there. See Italy? That's the boot. 
you know that. Rome's in there. Here's Malta. Here's like all of the Mediterranean and everywhere Paul has done ministry. Just how long do you think it would take before a missionary gets to Malta? Look at that little tiny island. They didn't even recognize it when they got there. Who knows if anybody even knew it was there? How long does it take someone to get the idea to go there to tell people about Jesus, do you think? But God has people on Malta that need to know him and need to see his power. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, looks down and says, who do I have that's near Malta? Paul's close enough. I'll I'll get him there. I'm going to put Paul on Malta because I have people there that need to know about me and need to see my power. Thank you very much. How long does it take for them to know? Do they ever know if God does not intervene through Paul? Why does it matter how it happens? It matters because knowing God's plan and living God's plan are two very different things. The how is really important. Understanding that God fulfills his promises and then waiting for God to fulfill his promises are two very different things. That's a very long 11 days between the angels saying, Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome (laughs) and them landing on dry land again. That's a long, long wait in a tense situation. Because trusting that God will accomplish his purposes in your life is different than trusting how God will accomplish his purposes for your life. They're two very different things. And the how is where we get hung up, right? That's what we said, because following God is miserable sometimes. But that's not the whole story. The misery is not the whole story. The whole story, the part where we get to learn something important, the part that makes the whole story compelling is that God loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And God does have a plan, and God does have a purpose, and He will see it through. So we trust Him because He is trustworthy. How do we know that God is trustworthy? Because anybody who sees our brokenness and our problems and our sins and all of our issues and still loves us so much to send his son to die in our place and invite us into his family, anybody that can see all that and still do that on our behalf deserves the benefit of the doubt, I would say. You can trust him in the how because he's proven that he's trustworthy through what he's done. And some of you this morning, your life is smooth sailing right now. It is a straight line. You're going where you expect. God's doing what you want Some of you right now are in some rough water and you're starting to not feel very well and you're starting to question what God is doing in your life. You're doing everything that you can to hold things together. You're starting to tie the boat together (laughs) to make sure it doesn't come apart. But you're really starting to question what God is doing in your life. Some of you have just lost hope altogether. You're just done trying And you've just lost hope. There's nothing left to do. There's no sun. There's no stars. You've just abandoned hope. And no matter where you are, smooth sailing, squiggly line, here's what the gospel would say. You can trust God. If you are a follower of God, you can trust Him, whether it's easy or hard or hopeless. You can trust God because there is no follower of Jesus who is without hope. 
because for the followers of Jesus, there is always hope. Does that mean God will see you through every circumstance, every storm in your life? Sure it does, all but the last one. He'll see you through every one but the last one. We just don't know which one the last one is. And then when he doesn't see you through the last one, guess what? You get to be with him. That's not too bad. That's why Paul can live his life and say to live is Christ. To live is just Christ living through me to achieve God's purposes in the world. And when I die, I'm with him and that's good too. So I'm good with either one. That's why Paul can live his life with reckless abandon. That's why the title of our sermon series in Acts is Unleashed to Change the World. You can change the world. You can pursue Jesus with reckless abandon when you don't care how God does what he does. Say, God, use me for your purposes. There's always hope for those that know Jesus. And for those who don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't know him, there's going to be a time in your life where you have exhausted every human capacity to make yourself right or clean yourself up or get your life in order. And when you've exhausted all of those, God's going to say, stop working so hard. Trust me. I've got this one. I've got it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are a great God and we know we can trust you, but we struggle with it. So Lord, I would just ask this morning that you would help us to trust you And Lord, I would ask for those who are here this morning that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, who have not placed their trust in you, Lord, I just pray that this morning you would would do a work in their heart that they would desire to know you and have hope in every circumstance, even the hopeless ones, that there is hope in you because you're a great God and you overcome. And you offer us great and eternal hope. Lord, we thank you for your word and for Paul's testimony. And we offer this up to you as our praise this morning in your name. Amen.